This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Army often hosts officials on its installations and it keeps them in on-base lodging. The rooms used to be a little more comfortable than jail cells. Now they've become a bit plusher. But the Army turned to contractors to improve those rooms, and the service is still dealing with some issues. And we turn to Federal News Network Scott Massioni, who has more on that story. Scott, tell us about the privatizing the lodging. This kind of goes alongside with privatizing members' housing. But we're talking about what passes for hotels in the Army, huh? That's right. And, uh, you know, the military housing privatization started in the 1990s. This is something the Army determined it needed in around 2003. And if you remember with military housing, we've seen that uh, what the Army has said and the private contractors have said, they took their eyes off the ball and uh, did not uh, keep with the upkeep of, of these sorts of houses. And now we're seeing mice, mold, lead paint, all that sort of stuff. And they, they use the military houses, uh, housing companies to build new houses, but also to improve the older ones. Now, the military is asking a lot of these privatized hotel companies to uh, really improve the facilities that they already have. The Army determined that in 2003, over 80% of its lodging facilities either needed replacement or renovation, and the estimated cost was going to be about a a billion dollars. And if you look at the pictures of these things, uh, it it looks pretty bleak. Uh, The way that they used to be, it was like, um, you know, literally cinder blocks, and as you said, like a jail cell, just a TV on a stand, and that was pretty much it. So the Army has already pushed back a lot of the issues that it's had with this, um, you know, they extended their renovation plans out to 2029, which is already years longer than originally intended. And do you, uh, the GAO thinks that they need uh, some better oversight over what's going on. Yeah, linoleum floors and uh, cinder block walls, and sometimes the air conditioning didn't work very well. And so these really are cell block like types of uh, housing. And this is for guests and VIPs to stay in. So there's a little bit of a public relations piece to this, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have stayed in them with the uh, undersecretary of the Army before uh, down at uh, in, in at Fort Stewart. Um, you know, these are, are the ones I stayed in were very nice. But, uh, you know, there are some that are not so nice. Now, it's just regular uh, lodging companies that are taking these over. They're like Marriott or the Clarion Hotels. Uh, you know, so they're they're companies that are are used to doing this. They know what to do with it. Uh, but the military is still not seeing the results results that they need. And uh, Congress and the GAO aren't exactly sure why, because a lot of these things are not as uh, as the oversight's just really not there when they want it to be. Got it. And no Vidal Sassoon shampoo either in the shower, probably, or great, (laughs) you know, flaky soap. So what issues has the GAO seen? Basically, the Army is, I mean, how is the Army with respect to the specifications? Because the contractors have to know what the rooms are supposed to be like when finished. And has that been an issue? clarity on the requirements. Yeah. So like I said, the renovation plans have been pushed out to 2029 and they've already changed, you know, some of the things that, and, and renovated some of these, these buildings and facilities. However, the army seems to have changed its, its plan midway through this thing. They've changed them so that they will be more renovation centric as opposed to building new lodging. Now the Pentagon has not included a lot of information for the army's time, uh, revised timeframe or its development plans and its, in its reports to Congress. So uh, if DOD were to provide, provide this additional information, then Congress and other uh, decision makers can decide, all right, you're you're trying to finish these uh, objectives that you want or not. Uh, You know, another issue that GAO really was had an issue with is that the Army 
estimated things through a cost avoidance structure. So instead of saying we've saved this much money, they're saying we've avoided spending this much money. And what they said is they've avoided spending $606 million for official travel lodging from 2009 to 2019. Now, GAO thinks that's pretty off base. It's not what they're actually saving. They think this cost avoidance structure is a really weird way to kind of decide how to uh, to save money or what they might be saving money through. So uh, they think there's a little bit of weird stuff there. And then finally, there's just the negligence in collecting data. There's issues with how standardized the data is, a, an issue that's very huge in the military housing, which makes it hard to compare things year by year and then also between installations. And finally, they're noticing that there's a lot of people that are staying off base uh, and not for the, the reasons that they should be staying off base. That may be because it's not very fun to stay on base. But, you know, it, that, those things are costing extra money. And sure. uh, the government doesn't like that. We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Mossiona. Yes, in some of those places you call for room service and they give you 25-year-old cans of K-rations or something, maybe. <laughs> doesn't sound very appealing. And meanwhile, you're also reporting on a developing story where Transcom, the Transportation Command, has been helping the Air Force in its newest endeavor, the Space Force. And you have something new to report there, too. Right. So what the Air Force is doing, they've had these vanguard programs, which are really things that will push the envelope on what is uh, really considered the technology of the future and uh, really pushing innovation to the next level. What the Air Force wants to do is create a terrestrial rocket that can deliver troops and uh, cargo around the world in maybe less than an hour, less than an hour and a half, and have it land with a reentry rocket. This is something that U.S. Transportation Command has been really excited about and thought about for the past couple of years as well. So the uh, Air Force Research Lab is going to be leading this effort. However, Transcom is, has now said that they will provide a supporting role. And what they really said is that they are really excited for this partnership. There's multiple factors at play that really can help with favorable costs, capacity, and speed across working with the commercial space sector. And so having a combatant command behind you, as well as having these two services in the Department of the Air Force, could really help this thing get off the ground, no pun intended, and uh, get into um, an actual reality. And they're looking at that kind of space rocket technique as opposed to, say, development of a supersonic transport. Yeah, I mean, they're they're looking really into everything at this point. The Air Force and the military are throwing uh, really lots of dimes at uh, lots of different uh, innovative technologies. But this seems like something that they're hoping the commercial sector will invest mostly in instead of the military. So what they're they're trying to do is just make sure that they're ready once the commercial sector is ready for this. And we've seen SpaceX already has a rocket that has gone into space and then landed itself. So these are, are things that are becoming a reality and the cost is possibly there for the military. So they just want to make sure that they can have the logistics ready for when this technology is actually uh, usable. Interesting, because the issue there would be scale and repeatability of this particular type of transport, because you can put, what, 400 troops on a big C-130, for example, 250, 400 troops, and fly them at that speed anywhere you want where that plane can land. But there's no rocket yet that can take more than three people anywhere so far. So it's interesting to see what, what it is they have in terms of the scale and application of that type of technology. And it's also very costly. 
Right, exactly. And, you know, this would probably be used for something a little more far future when it comes to actually putting humans on it. Uh, but you can imagine easily how uh, uh, tactically beneficial that would be if you could get someone uh, there or a small special, special operations team somewhere in less than an hour. However, when it comes to cargo, these rockets can hold up to 100 tons of cargo, which is about the same as a C-17 plane. Uh, obviously, that's very helpful. It's just a matter of how quickly you can get it packed in there. If it's going to take you a week to pack it in and then just an hour to deliver, it doesn't really help you out much. So it's uh, packaging these things, getting them on the, the rockets just as quickly as they need them to actually get there. Well, the night before the rocket ship, they can stay in a really nice lodging. By then, it'll be rebuilt for the Army, and they'll have nice rooms with carpet. Federal News Network, Scott right. Mossione, thanks so much. Thank you. Check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. 
and I had to run on the ballot as Vice President Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as Vice President White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? 
Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a Secretary of Commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. We all have a lot on our plates, work, kids, relationships. And sometimes it can be hard to just catch a breath. When life is go, 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 it matters where you stay. Hilton's family of brands is team members dedicated to making you feel truly cared for so you can mentally check out before you even check in. Take the break you deserve and book your next stay on Hilton.com. Hilton for the stay. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit LiveXLive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.